This morning, I invite you to draw your sword, turn to the gospel according to Mark chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 2 to 8. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence, the public reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 9, I'll begin reading at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us build up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were all so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray today that you will help me to preach. Help me to preach. Help me to preach in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The sole purpose of Mark's gospel is to clearly communicate the identity of Jesus. Perhaps there is no better story that illustrates the personhood of the rabbi from Galilee than the one that I just read for you. Mark begins our passage with simply stating that after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up a mountain. When you read that opening line, it begs the question, six days after what? That question catapults us back to the previous passage. Some of you may recall it's there that Jesus and the boys are wandering around the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked them a poignant question. Who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets reincarnated. But Jesus got real serious real fast. What about you? Who do you say that I am? It is Peter, the spokesman of the group, who says with confidence, you are Christ. This is a profound, pivotal confession in Mark's gospel. Up until now, nobody has really articulated with any accuracy the identity of Christ. The Pharisees said he is demon-possessed. His own family members said he is insane. Yet here, it is Peter who says, you are Christ. This is one of two extremely important confessions in Mark's gospel. In fact, he arranges them around these two confessions. This one found in the middle, and then at the end of the gospel, it will be the Roman centurion who looks up 
at the dangling Jesus on the cross and declares, surely this man was the son of God. You put those two confessions together that Jesus is Christ and he's son of God. And that fits in nicely with Mark's overall purpose statement for in Mark chapter one, verse one, he says, I'm writing to you about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. What Jesus am I talking about? The one who is Christ, son of God. He is Christ, the long awaited Messiah. He is son of God in a class all by himself. In our passage, it is the apostle named Peter who declares you are Christ. This is the crux of Christianity. It's the line of demarcation. This declaration separates sheep from goats, wheat from weeds, children of light from children of darkness. It separates those who praise him versus those who persecute him. Those who love him versus those who laugh at him. It separates those who are in heaven versus those who are in hell. You are Christ. This is the crux of Christianity. Jesus then began to proceed to teach how this Christ is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He says, I will go to Jerusalem and there I'll be handed over to the religious rulers. I will be beaten and executed. And on the third day, I will be raised from the dead. If anyone comes after me, he must deny self, take up cross, and follow me. After this teaching, six days after this statement, six days after Peter's confession that you are Christ, six days after this, Jesus takes the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and they go up on a mountain. Because they go up on a mountain, you as the reader, you got a holy hunch. You got a sneaking suspicion that something great is about to happen. And the reason you think this way is because all throughout the scripture, God has done some of his best work on a mountain. It was on the backside of Mount Horeb. That Moses, while tending the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro, he saw a bush that was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. And from that vantage point, God captured the attention of that seasoned shepherd and said, I want you to go down to Pharaoh and say, let God's people go. It was on a mountain that just a few years later, Moses would bring them to the same general area, climb Mount Sinai, and there he would be given the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone. It was on a mountain, Mount Carmel, where Elijah stood up and declared there is only one true God. It's the God of Israel. It's the God Yahweh himself. For on that day, it was Elijah who defeated the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, proving once and for all there's only one God in the universe. It was on a mountain that Jesus preached his famous sermon that's recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's on a mountain, Mount Calvary, where Jesus climbs that holy hill. He hangs to make us holy. He takes your sin upon himself. And there he declares it is finished. And he paid the sin debt that he did not owe because you and I have a sin debt that we cannot pay. And Jesus' dead body was taken off the cross and placed in the grave. And on the third day, he got up to give us hope, life, eternal. It was on a mountain. That Jesus, the resurrected Christ, ascended into the heavens 
And those gawking disciples kept staring up into the sky. And the angel said, why are you looking so intently into the sky for the same Jesus that you've seen leave you? will come back in like manner. Oh, Jesus does some great work on a mountain. In fact, whenever you have a meaningful moment with God, how do you describe it? It was a mountaintop experience. Some of you have had a mountaintop experience this past weekend. Some of you are having a mountaintop experience right now. Some of you can think back over your spiritual pilgrimage and there have been certain moments, certain seasons, certain events uh, that have taken place in your life that you would describe them as a mountaintop experience. Why? Because you know that God does some of his best work on top of a mountain. So when you read in our passage that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up a mountain, you know that the Savior is cooking up something good. You know that something great is about to happen. You've got just a holy hunch and a sanctified itch. You've just got this idea that something great is going to take place. It's Luke, in his version of this same story, who says that they went up the mountain to pray. And Luke says that while he was praying, his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Mark, in his rendering, just simply says that Jesus was transfigured. His clothes became bright white, whiter than any bleach could get them in all the world. Regardless, both Mark and Luke testify that whatever happened to Jesus on this mountain was an inside job. It was from the inside out. It wasn't from the outside in. It was from the inside out because both of them testify that something happened to his face. Something happened to his countenance. That he was transfigured. And because he was internally transfigured, that affected the fabric and fiber of his clothing. And his clothing became bright white, as bright as a flash of lightning, whiter than any bleach could get them. It was from the inside out, not the outside in. People have wondered what took place on this mountain, what truly happened on this mountain of transfiguration. There's been a whole lot of ink that's been spilt by authors and theologians trying to describe what took place on this mountain. I do like what William Lane wrote when he simply said, in this brief moment, the veil of the humanity of Jesus was lifted. And what the disciples saw was the raw, radiant glory of God. That on this mountain, what took place is that the God-man just lifted the thin veil of his humanity And when the God-man lifts the thin veil of his humanity, the only thing that's left to seep out is the glory of God. And so the only thing that could radiate out from him was the radiant, raw, exciting splendor of God Almighty. It was God showing up on mountain of transfiguration. That Jesus lifted the veil of his humanity and all of his glory was shining through. The glory of the one and only, fully begotten of God the Father. This is God in the flesh. And in this moment, the veil was lifted and his raw radiance 
was shining through. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that on that day, Peter, James, and John got a sneak peek of coming attractions. That on this day, they just got a glimpse of God's glory in Jesus Christ. Let me simply say it this way, that what Peter had confessed, heaven now confirmed. Peter had confessed, you are Christ. And heaven confirmed that Peter, you're exactly right. He is Christ. He is God in the flesh. He is the long-awaited Messiah. You are Christ. It is Mark when he uses the word transfigured. He, he's really using a specific word that the apostle Paul will employ in Romans chapter 12 verse 2. When he's writing to you, to me, to us, the church, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's our word, transfigured. It's the same Greek word, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to tell God's perfect will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That in the transformation of our mind, in the, in the transfiguration of our mind, that when we allow God to take over our stinking thinking, when we allow God to take over how we think, because we know that what we believe influences how we behave, that with a transformed mind becomes transformed feet. It becomes a transformed heart, a heart that is transformed, transfigured. On this mountain, Jesus was transfigured. The thin veil of his humanity was lifted. The raw, radiant glory of God shone through. And all of a sudden, two visitors appeared, Moses and Elijah. Always wondered, how did these guys know that's Moses and that's Elijah? Did they wear name tags? I mean, really, how, how did they know? I think probably just the inspiration of the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter, James, and John, hey, that's Moses and that's Elijah. These two visitors are celestial citizens. What I mean by that is they came from heaven. It is Luke who describes them as appearing in their glorious splendor. Where did they come from? They came from heaven. Because that's where they were when they died. See, Moses and Elijah were looking forward to the coming of Christ. And by faith in the uh, uh, coming Christ, then they went to heaven when they died. They did not go to a place of the dead. They did not go to Sheol. They did not go to a holding pattern. Did not go to hell. No, no, no. They went to heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so Moses and Elijah are celestial citizens. They come in their glorious splendor. They come from heaven and they stand there to talk to Jesus. It's important that it's Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And in Jesus, he is the perfect fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. And they stand there and they talk to him about, according to Luke's version, his upcoming departure, which is about to take place in Jerusalem. That word departure is the Greek word exodon, from which we get the English derivative exodus. In the first exodus, God liberated his children from the slavery in Egypt. But in the second exodus, God will deliver his children from the slavery of sin. And sin is a far worse taskmaster than Pharaoh. 
And so Jesus came to liberate us. Jesus came to set us free. Jesus came so we could walk in the freedom only he can provide. Jesus came to conquer sin, death, hell, and the grave. Jesus came to obliterate your addiction. Jesus came to break the shackles of your sin. Jesus came to put to death the old self so that you can walk in a new life with Jesus Christ. Jesus came to set us free. He came on a rescue mission. He came for the second exodus. He came to help us to live in freedom with him. And so Moses and Elijah come from heaven and they speak to Jesus about this exodon, this departure, what was about to take place in Jerusalem. If you've ever wondered, what do they talk about in heaven? When they gather around that heavenly water cooler, when they get a latte with each other, when they get a frappuccino one with the other, when they sit down across the table, what do they talk about? The answer, they're preoccupied with Jesus. Heaven is always preoccupied with Jesus, always has been, always will be. Heaven is always talking about Jesus. Why? Because he is the uh, tr- uh, the crown jewel of heaven. He is the quintessential one of God. He is uh, the son of God. He is Christ. And so they always are talking about Jesus. My father in the ministry, Robert Smith Jr., has said umpteen times, and I've heard him say it almost umpteen times, that the, in this book, this book does not tell you so much about the plan of salvation as it tells you about the man of salvation, Jesus Christ. From cover to cover, this is all about Jesus because in heaven, the subject matter is Jesus. So from Genesis to Revelation, it is all pointing to and describing and defending the Lord Jesus himself. It is describing who he is and why he had to come. So as early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you and I read about the proto-euangelion, which just means it's the prototype of the gospel, the following the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. It is God who speaks to the serpent. And he curses that serpent and he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. That word enmity means hostility. There will be a war that is waged and you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. That is a picture of Calvary. That's a picture of what God was going to do in Jesus Christ. For certainly as Jesus climbed that skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, that his life was taken from him. He voluntarily laid down his life. And the devil must have thought, I have nipped him in the heels. I have been sufficient. And they must have thrown a party on Friday night and uh, all day Saturday. But early on Sunday morning, Jesus rose with all power in his hands. And I think the first step that he took was that he crushed the serpent's head. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of what was spoken of him as early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But you get to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And it is John who says, Behold the Lamb of God who was slain before the very foundation of the world. What John is telling us is that Jesus has always been the slain, resurrected Christ. That before the very foundation of the world, in God's mind, Jesus was already slain. 
He was already executed. Before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, uh, God said, let there be. Before Genesis 1-1, in God's mind, Jesus had already been crucified because that's the only plan of salvation. That's the only way for sinners to be saved. That's the only way for lost people to be found. It's only through the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calvary is plan A. There ain't no plan B because there's no need for a plan B because plan A is sufficient enough. And so God said at the very beginning I will have to send my son their savior the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be slain before the very foundation of the world from Genesis to Revelation we find that the book is about Jesus and on this mountain when Moses and Elijah show up they are there to confirm what Peter had confessed Peter said you are the Christ And Moses and Elijah came to say that's exactly right. So they spoke with him. Talked about his upcoming exodon, his upcoming departure that would soon take place in Jerusalem. It's Peter who wants to get in on this scintillating conversation. The reality is he really should have kept his mouth shut. Last time Peter spoke... He said one good thing and then one boneheaded thing. The good thing he said is you are Christ. And then after Jesus began to explain how he would be the suffering servant, it was like, no, 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 no. That's not the Christ I'm talking about, Peter said. And so he pulled him aside to reprimand Jesus, to put him in his place, to tell him what for, and to describe to him the Messiah that he thought that Jesus ought to be. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are being an advocate for the adversary. You're being used by the devil. Now, you would think that if you had had that experience and Jesus had looked at you and in essence said, get behind me, Satan, you would think that you'd be very careful to open your mouth. You would think that you would keep your mouth shut until asked a question or encouraged to speak. Not Peter. No, he can't remember that. He he can't learn that lesson, but you can't either and I can't either. And so here in this moment, he wants to get involved in the scintillating conversation. So he simply says, it is good for us to be here. You read that and you think to yourself, Peter, what in the world are you talking about? Why are you saying this? There's Jesus. There's mighty Moses. There is the electric Elijah and little bitty Peter. Why in the world are you talking? You don't need to be saying anything, Peter. You just need to shut up and sit down. You just need to keep your mouth shut. But in a parenthetical way, Mark tells us he didn't know what to say because he was so frightened. Everybody was frightened, didn't know what to do. And all of a sudden, uh, Peter, who speaks, then has an idea. It's good for us to be here. Let's make a shelter. The word shelter means tabernacle. Let's make a shelter or a tabernacle. Uh, We'll make one for you, Jesus, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Shelter is a tabernacle. You and I may call it an altar. It's a place uh, to commemorate what was happening. You may even say it was a, it was a place where worship could be lifted up. So, so let's make an altar for you and for Moses and for Elijah. No sooner had he had that idea that God Almighty appeared in a cloud and the voice of God spoke. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. In those days it required 
three to confirm a testimony. And on that mountain, there were three that showed up to confirm the testimony that Jesus is Christ. There's Moses, for Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. There's Elijah, for Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. And there is God Almighty, who simply says, this is my son. You would do well to listen to him. A party of three to confirm the testimony that Jesus is Christ. So once again, what Peter had confessed, heaven now confirms. God gives an object lesson. God shows Peter, James, and John that Jesus is in a class all by himself. There are times when I read this story that I've got to walk away and ask myself, what was so wrong with what Peter suggested? Is it, is it bad for him to say, I want to prolong this mountaintop experience? There may be some people here that have experienced a phenomenal D-Now weekend and you think to yourself, I wish I could prolong this. I mean, I know I'm dead dog tired and I know I haven't slept in like three days, but I wish, I wish we could keep this going. I wish I could stay on this mountain a little bit longer. Is it really bad for Peter to want to celebrate this moment, to commemorate this moment? Was it really terrible for Peter to say, listen, this is so good. Let's, let's make a monument. Let's make a, a memorial for Jesus and for Moses and for Elijah. What was so wrong with what Peter had suggested? And the answer is found in the words of God Almighty. Because in the words of God Almighty, the Lord is saying to Peter, this is my son. Jesus, not Moses, is Elijah. I mean, this, Jesus, not Moses, is the Christ. Uh, Jesus, not Elijah, is Christ. Uh, Jesus, not anybody else, is Christ. Jesus is in a class all by himself. The problem with Peter's suggestion is that he was placing Jesus on par with Moses and Elijah. And, and, and God the Father was saying, look, he, he, he's, he's, he's all by himself. He, he is alone. In fact, Mark says that after God spoke these words, that Peter, James, and John looked around and no one was there except Jesus. Jesus is all by himself. That There's no one like him. There's no one that can surpass him. There's no one that can rival his greatness. Jesus is in a class all by himself. What Peter had confessed six days earlier, heaven came to confirm on the mountain of transfiguration. And what heaven came to confirm on the mountain of transfiguration, I came this morning to confess in your hearing. The only reason I am here today is just to confirm that Jesus is Christ. I think the reason God woke me up this morning, the reason God put air in my lungs today, the reason that he quickened my step in this hour is because Jesus wants me to come and proclaim that Jesus is in a class all by himself. Jesus is more faithful than Abraham. He is more submissive than Isaac. He is a a greater ruler than Joseph. He is a mightier deliverer 
than Moses. Jesus is in a class all by himself. He is a greater priest than Aaron. He is a greater prophet than Elijah. He is purer than King David. He is wiser than King Solomon. I wish you'd tell somebody that Jesus is in a class all by himself. He is more patient than Job. He is more prayerful than Daniel. He is stronger than Samson. He is more obedient than Jonah. Jesus is in a class all by himself. He is one who is more convincing than John the Baptist, more even-tempered than the apostle named Peter. He is more gracious than the one named Paul. He is more loving than the beloved disciple named John. I wish you'd tell your neighbor that Jesus is in a class all by himself. Jesus is irresistible and Jesus is irreplaceable. Jesus is the alpha and the omega. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is in a class all by himself. Jesus is unstoppable. Jesus is extremely approachable. Jesus is the lily of the valley. Jesus is the rose of Sharon. Jesus is the lover of my soul. Jesus is the forgiver of my sin. I just got to tell you this morning that Jesus is in a class all by himself. Jesus is the healer of the sick. Jesus is the savior of the sinner. Jesus is the one who has come to liberate you from all the shackles of your sin. He's in a class all by himself. I can say this because Jesus is one who would not be denied by the apostle Peter. He is one who could not be dethroned by Pilate. He is one that could not be destroyed by the adversary. He's in a class all by himself. In Jesus, my dreams are fulfilled. In Jesus, my faith has found a resting place. In Jesus, my hope is built. In Jesus, my forgive, my sins have been forgiven past, present, and future. In Jesus, he's in a class all by himself. I came this morning just to tell you that the reason he is in a class all by himself is because one day, 2,000 years ago, he climbed Calvary's hill and he took the whipping that you deserved. He took the punishment that I deserved. He was nailed to a tree. His body was broken and bruised for you and for me. And Jesus declared, it is finished. Jesus declared, your sin debt has been paid. Jesus gave up the ghost and he bowed his head. His dead lifeless body was taken off the cross and placed into a grave. And like we just sang about moments ago, that dead body began to breathe again. On the third day, I'm telling you, on the third day, on the third day, Jesus burst forth with healing in his hands. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living. Just because, just because, just because he lives, friend. He's in a class all by himself. Is this the Christ that you know? Is this the Christ that you worship? Is this the Christ that you adore? Is this the Christ to which you surrender everything? Friend, he's so much more than a good guy. 
He's so much more than a religious teacher. He's so much more than one of many rabbis. He's so much more than just a prophet who's walked across the pages of history. His name is Jesus, and he is the Christ. And he's in a class all by himself. You can't promote him because he can't get any higher. And so please don't ever demote him by making less of him. He is worthy of all of your worship. He is worthy of all of your praise. He is worthy of all of your affection. He is Christ all by himself. And he's in a class all by himself. So this morning, if you're here and you've never accepted this Jesus as Christ of your life, I call you to come home. Come home to the grace and forgiveness and love of God. But maybe you're here today and you are a believer, but you still struggle with that old self, that sin that so easily entangles you. And today, friend, come home and find the forgiveness of God. Maybe you're here today and you've been attending this church for a long time, but you've never made this faith family a permanent earthly place for you. Today, come home. This Jesus that we talk about a lot, he's in a class all by himself. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Lord, we pray that you will welcome us home. If somebody needs to come, I pray that on this day, in this moment, in this hour, they will come to you. Lord, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.